It's the end of the season, almost, and it's a clip show. How dare they end the season with not just a clip show that is of old clips, not original ones like in Bedtime Stories or Rites of Spring. Oh, no, no, no. It's a two-parter. Now that's just rude. But it is fun to revisit some of the best times from the last four seasons. Even if it is just a clip show, we are going to have a great time, of course. So let's get to dancing, praying, and showbiz chickens in part one of We're Out of Here. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. Oh, you're my best friends. I could never What a beautiful day it is in Florida, where inside the house on Richmond Street, we enter the home just as the girls do. Rose in a blue skirt and sweater combo is the first to comment on how lovely the day has been, and peachy orange dressed Blanche couldn't agree more. The reason they're riding high is that they went to the theater for a play, not a movie. Blanche is so glad to have made it to this show. She had already missed Marlon Brando in his iconic role as Stanley Kowalski in A Streetcar Named Desire and one Lee J. Cobb in Death of a Salesman. And she was not going to miss Dick Buttkiss in Pal Joey. Pal Joey being a 1940 musical focusing on a nightclub performer and an affair. The best-known tune from that show would be Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered. Rewinding for just a moment, Coco... Lee J. Cobb. I love Lee J. Cobb. What do we know him from? Well. Twilight Zone? Where do we even begin? Is he in 12 Angry Men? He's in everything. Yeah. He's an acting icon. First, everyone should know that his birth name is Leo Jacoby. So the J. Cobb, as Coco and I deduced one night very excitedly, is actually short for Jacob. Now, that's a good stage name. You might not know Lee by name, but you do know his big square head if you saw it. He passed away back in 1976, but before then earned over 100 screen credits and over a dozen distinguished award nominations. He would win a Laurel Award and Western Heritage Award and would be nominated for three primetime Emmys, two Golden Globes, two Oscars, and even a Grammy. Lee earned some of his highest praise after originating the role of Willie Loman on stage in Death of a Salesman. In 1968, he would perform in King Lear in the longest run of that play's history, 72 performances. Other roles you may know Lee J. Cobb from are On the Waterfront, 12 Angry Men, The Brothers Karamazov, The Three Faces of Eve, How the West Was Won, The Virginian Gunsmoke, and our favorite role of his as Lieutenant Kinderman starring alongside our queen, Ellen Burstyn, in The Exorcist. Watch out for drafts. A draft in the fall when the house is hot is a... Magic carpet for bacteria. I might do his 12 Angry Men, too, because, well, he's great in that. I think he's the racist. He's oh, the yeah, one I that everyone, so. like, turns their back on at the end because he's like, you know how these people are. <laughs> they do this and they do that and they stab people with a thing. He's a great angry man, and it would have been cool to see. Wait, is George C. Scott in 12 Angry Men? I think he's in the remake. Oh, okay. Or maybe that's Jack I'd just Lemon. love to see the two of them head-to-head Big head scream off. (laughs) Uh, He's great in The Exorcist. I love that character. Oh, and that's funny, funny. The um, Lieutenant Kinderman is Lee J. Cobb in The Exorcist. In Exorcist 3, he's played by George C. Scott. (gasps) They knew. So, pretty cool. Oh, I didn't realize that's the same character rolling over. That's cool. In the past, we have talked about, and I'm sure we don't need to remind anyone of who Marlon Brando was, so we're going to move on to Richard Marvin Butkus, who decided to go by Dick. Dick Butkus. Dick was most famous for playing football. If you ever saw the SNL sketch with the Bears, well, Dickie Boy was the poster child for that look and all of that Chicagoan energy. The Bears. The Bears. Believe it or not, Bob, 
According to the odds makers, San Francisco is favored to win the Super Bowl. After winning a lot of football things, Dick moved on to acting. And unlike many crossover performers, he didn't only play himself. Some of those roles were on The Bernie Mac Show, Any Given Sunday, Coach, The Last Boy Scout, MacGyver, Necessary Roughness, Gremlins 2, The New Batch, My Two Dads, Kate and Allie, Growing Pains, Matlock, Night Court, Murder, She Wrote, Johnny Dangerously, The Love Boat, The Greatest American Hero, Magnum P.I., Fantasy Island, Taxi, Wonder Woman, The Rockford Files, The Six Million Dollar Man, Police Story, A Matter of Wife and Death, (laughs) McMillan and Wife, Coach, Emergency, most importantly, he was alongside Raquel Welch, Harvey Keitel, and Bill Cosby, in Mother Jugs and Speed. Attention, ladies and gentlemen. We have an urgent code three from 20th Century Fox. Be on the lookout for Bill Cosby, Raquel Welch, and Harvey Keitel in Mother Jugs and Speed. And the thing about Mother Jugs and Speed is that those are their names. Harvey Keitel, as you just heard, he was the speedy driver. For some reason, Bill Cosby is mother... And, of course, Raquel Welch. Jugs. Stop calling me Jugs. I feel like we should watch this movie. It would have been funnier just just from a, from a title and character perspective if their names were switched around. She shouldn't be Jugs. Yeah, Cosby she should have should been be Speed. Yeah. Hilarious. She's a fast driver. Exactly. Well, that's in our remake, our updated remake. Yeah, she'll be Speed. The ladies are still riding high from their day out when Sophia, in her green and purple plaid dress and green cardigan, is coming into the living room from the lanai, and she's not alone. Looks like Mr. Jim Shue not only got married and changed his name since we saw him last at the start of the season in Yes, We Have No Havanas, but he also earned his real estate license or has become a well-to-do businessman, Mr. Yakamura. Great seeing you again, Ralph Ahn. As the two make their way into the room, Sophia is going on about the amenities of the home when Dorothy, who looks like she got dressed by rolling around in her closet until her body was covered, a.k.a. a white-collared blouse, a purple scarf, maybe? A pinkish jacket with what could be called lizard scale print and mauve culottes, along with flesh boot sighting. I saw him. It's a look. Anyway... Dorothy is wondering what her mother is doing. Isn't it obvious she's selling the house? As Blanche, the owner of the home, looks on in disgust, Sophia continues pointing out the never-used fireplace and that the ceilings are so high he could stack 50 VCRs. I'm not really sure why that's the measurement. Friend of the show Tommy and I both think it was a dated thing because it was just a cool technology to reference. Coco thinks that it's racist which it probably is. Coco, can you explain your theory on that? It's in line with a Japanese character being obsessed with photography mm-hmm. or a video camera. Yes, they're I'm, so technologically advanced. That's how, that's how we can reference things. And that's where the best electronics were coming from. It makes sense. I believe it's racist. And you, you can't, can't say that. that. Sophia tells him that he can take his time getting back to her, but he decides right then and there to write an offer on his little notepad and give it to her. For some 80s reason, he had to have a thick accent, even though when he tells a story about accidentally beating up some cops when he was a teenager, he sounds like this. And two big fellas come up to us and say, we're taking you guys in. We say, well, what are you talking about? He says, you guys are wise guys. And they... They start to grab us. And we said, well, show us your badges. We don't have to show you our badges. And they start One guy has me like this, and my, my toes are barely on the ground. He asked me up like this. And then all of a sudden, I felt the swirl of activity. I says, uh-oh, <laughs> there's five of us, five 15-year-olds, and there's two big policemen. And so we took our chances. We didn't know they were policemen. These are wise guys. Somebody yells They're out cops. to me. I said, what? And sure enough, the the policeman that I was encountering shows his badge and pulls out a gun. I go, oh, God. (laughs) That was the ugliest badge I've ever seen in my life. They handcuffed uh, four of us with two handcuffs, and the other one they they left loose, and they threw us in the back of the squad car. And they were mad because they were bleeding, their clothes were torn. And, of course, this was in 1941, the Halloween of 1941. 
and the anti-Japanese feeling was building up. Mm. So we say, we're Korean! And so we thought that, that would get us out. Finally, they bring us at that time to the University Police Station that was right here on Jefferson Boulevard in Hoover. And uh, they throw us in a drunk tank. Furious this little old woman is selling her house, Blanche storms up to Sophia, grabbing the note from her hand. When she sees the number Mr. Yakimura wrote upon it, she is suddenly not so mad. Before getting excited, she asks if the offer is in dollars. Sarcastic Sophia says, no, it's in sushi. You You can't can't say that. More confused than anyone, not that that's anything new, is Rose, who is wondering what on earth is going on. Sophia doesn't really have an answer. It's not like she made the mistake those dang Donaldson boys did by putting a for sale sign in the wrong yard. Where is the spinoff of the Donaldsons, by the way, and their dad who's always hitting on Blanche? I feel like they reference these neighbors pretty frequently, and we never get to meet the Donaldson boys. I think Crockett and Tubbs rolled over in their speedboat and arrested him for cocaine trafficking. Who? Donaldson. Oh, <laughs> the dad? Oh, the dad got him. Miami Vice. Yes. And he couldn't hit on Blanche anymore at the 4th of July picnic. That's right. So the kids might still be around. They were, and they're, they're just acting up. And they're acting up. They're yes. like, we're going to mess with the for sale out. sign because our dad got Miami Viced. I like it. Thank That's you. fun. Any, re- any excuse to put that music in here? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Jan Hammer. It's easy for Rose to discount the happenings because of the sign. It's not so easy for Blanche, who is holding the money. Nearly in a daze, she wanders into the kitchen, followed closely by Dorothy. With a cheesecake in hand, Blanche needs help deciding what to do. Dorothy can't believe this is something Blanche would even consider. Sophia, who has now joined them, is excited to hear that it might happen as she will get a 3% cut as the agent. What's nice about this moment is that while Sophia is happy and Blanche is distraught, no one is really pushing any agenda. Dorothy even starts out by telling Blanche to not let the stress of where will my girls go be a deciding factor. They can just find another huge, perfect home. Blanche has been giving off a worried vibe, but she's not worried about the girls. It's about what her tax bracket would be after the sale. Of course, that's a joke. Keeping the family together is of most importance. Rose then makes a great point. What are the odds of finding a house this perfect for them? Blanche thinks it would come down to luck. I think it would come down to her using that new money to just build a new house. We've touched on the insane layout of this home a few times before, but let's really take a moment to acknowledge the setup Blanche and, I believe, George purchased before having roommates. You've got four huge-ass bedrooms. Okay, Sophia's is a little on the smaller side, but only comparatively. Coco and I are in the primary bedroom of a single-family home, and I would say it is about the size of Sophia's, not to mention she has an entire full bathroom to herself. Then there's Blanche's huge room with space for all of the furniture you could win on Prices Right and a hallway to her bathroom. We haven't even seen her closet, but we know from the show's opening that it can fit an entire Rose. Speaking of, Rose has a huge open room, bathroom in the back, apparently a massive closet, and room for a heckin' couch. Dorothy also has the space and the loo. Then there's the lanai, a huge hallway to it, a massive living room, half of which goes unused, the unbelievably large hallway bathroom, which they've reconstructed, probably a closet or two somewhere, a kitchen, pantry, and garage. Good luck repeating this magic in your house hunt. Staying positive, the girls remember that lightning did strike before when Blanche met Rose at the grocery store. So it can happen again. Happen again. Happen again. For this scene, we're going all the way back to Season 1, Episode 25, The Way We Met. Quick pause here. This is a clip show, which is its own thing, but now this clip they're throwing to was a clip in the show about how they met. They're really getting their money's worth on this one. Needing roommates, Blanche is at the grocery store to put a flyer up on the bulletin board, listing one of her rooms for rent. Children, please think of the bulletin board as a tangible Craigslist and Exhibit A in Why Serial Killers Were So Prolific in the 80s. Wearing flowing white pants, a white version of her yellow purse, and a large floral pattern coral blouse with shoulder pads reaching to the gods, Blanche places her flyer on the board. 
just as Rose walks up in a cyan dress with a matching gray belt and purse. Her surprise accessory, especially in a dang grocery store, is the cat in her arms. Upon seeing Rose, Blanche asks if she's okay. Rose claims to be, but already Blanche can read her. She sees the emotions all over her face. It's clear that Rose has been dumped and is sad. Blanche takes a page out of the late, famously provocative comedian Lenny Bruce's book by explaining men are willing to do it in the mud. And the only solution Rose has for her scenario is to sleep with the guy's best friend. Like a lady can't go through a plate glass window and go to bed with you five seconds later. But guys can have head-on collisions with Greyhound buses. In disaster areas. Everybody's laying dead on the highway. Not only the hospital, in the ambulance, the guy makes play for the nurse. With a look of disbelief, Rose peers around the store before asking, am I on Candid Camera? Candid Camera actually started as a radio show in the 1940s before becoming a television show that we all knew and loved, using hidden cameras and silly situations to prank people before saying, smile, you're on Candid Camera. Basically, without Candid Camera, we wouldn't have had punked, impractical jokers, or most of the content I've seen coming from TikTok. Rose is right to question her interaction with Blanche. Here is this stranger saying she should sleep with a boyfriend's friend before she can even tell her what's actually going on. And what's actually going on is that Rose was evicted by her landlord because the new owners took over her building and they wouldn't let her keep her cat, Mr. Peepers. Plot whoopsie here, as we learned a few episodes ago in season four, that Rose suffers from a cat allergy and claims to have not ever had a cat. Hmm. While Rose appreciates Blanche's idea, she couldn't bring herself to sleep with the guy or his friend. If she was doing a sex revenge, it would be toward the landlord, and he's in his 80s and thinks he's the Archduke Ferdinand, who I believe Coco spoke about when we first talked about this clip in the original version of the episode. I know Rose, well, Betty, for that matter, was a huge animal lover. But when she drops the bomb that she's willing to get kicked out of her place because of a cat she found just a few days ago, that's just kind of not healthy. But Blanche doesn't see Rose's willingness to be homeless with a cat as a red flag surrounding her decision-making. Quite the opposite. She sees it as a sign of Rose's compassion and her strong character. Perhaps she's too loyal, which a narcissist like Blanche would of course be drawn to, so in that moment, Blanche decides to offer a room to Rose. In doing so, she kind of blurs the line between introduction and offer, leading Rose to ask why someone would name a room Blanche Devereaux. Again, Blanche doesn't see Rose's stupidity as a red flag. She just thinks she's witty. Flashing forward, it's move-in day for the girls. Rose is already as chipper as a corn dog at a country fair as she sets up some flowers. Rose, in her spring explosion of a dress covered in pink and blue flowers, is cheerfully celebrating the weather and her mood. Her attitude of gratitude isn't contagious, though. As introductions commence, Dorothy, who has come in with boxes, dressed in her casual Sunday afternoon 80s dad outfit of jeans and a yellow sweatshirt, is not feeling quite the same as she assumes Rose must be Mrs. Rogers. This is a reference to Mr. Rogers, the host of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which was a children's television show that you have definitely heard of, so I'm going to move on. He was all sunshine and rainbows, giving the same vibe roses as she places the flowers in the vase. Back to meeting each other, Rose extends her sympathies to Dorothy. She's so sorry to hear that her husband left her, but she can use her bathtub whenever she's feeling down. Dorothy appreciates the offer, with a pinch of sarcasm, of course. Blanche then enters the living room from the kitchen wearing a more sporty outfit, white pants and a teal-collared shirt that looks like a less hot version of a half-zip fleece. She's glad to see they've met each other, but they hit the first bump in the road when Dorothy asks which room to go to. With her own, whoopsie, Blanche acknowledges that she may have told the girls they could each have the same room. Rose suggests that they solve this dilemma the old St. Olafian way by log rolling but Dorothy's log is in the shop, so she has a better idea. They'll just flip a coin. This is actually a great problem solver. I once helped a lady that worked at Home Depot decide if she should move out of the state or not based on a coin toss. It's actually a pretty good tool in finding out your real feelings about a situation. With the coin landing on tails, Rose gets the preferred room. 
I guess maybe Dorothy's private bathroom doesn't have a bath? Shower only? I can't imagine the difference. Feeling bad for winning, which is relatable, Rose offers to swing by Dorothy's room if she's ever feeling bummed out and she can sing her the spiritual Kumbaya. That's going to be a hard pass from Dorothy. You're super competitive and you feel bad when you win? Yes. Great. <laughs> just, just checking. If it's something for me to compete, then that's great. But if it's like other people, like a board game or something... There will always, like, I have to win, and then there will always be part of, like, oh, I'm so sorry if you're sad. I don't want that to happen. So it's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Feels good inside my brain and heart. It seems to. Before we leave this scene, I must ask, what happened to Mr. Peepers? The whole reason Rose even had to move in the first place was this cat, and then there's no cat. What happened to the cat? Rose was conning Blanche. <gasps> it's been a long con all along. Because they don't even mention the cat when she moves in, right? There's never, never, there's a, never another word. She, Yeah, Rose just went outside and released the cat or handed it back to the little girl that was giving away kittens. <laughs> Maybe she found the owner because she said she just found him in the street like the week before. Maybe she found the owner or, or found the missing cat poster and was like, I have him. Here he is. And then she's like, oh, I've been evicted. I better just go with it. And also with how Blanche is about animals, it is surprising that she would offer a room in the first place with someone having a cat. So maybe everybody's conning everybody. Life is a highway. <laughs> Life is a highway club. Whoosh. Back in the kitchen, it seemed like the girls had just had the quarrel about the room, but that was five years ago. Considering a future without that house, Dorothy thinks aloud about what it would even be like if they weren't together. They've really become a family that depends on each other. I'm sorry, is Sophia going to town on a box of raisins over at the kitchen island? Those poor California wrinkle boys. California wrinkle boys. Blanche says that it's Rose out of all of them who is most codependent because she can be childlike, or as Sophia clarifies, a moron. All of this bullying should help make moving away from each other easier. Defensive, Rose proclaims that there is an array of things that she can do better than all of them. She doesn't start with dirty dancing, but it should have been on the list. The list that she does rattle off includes smoking a herring in a log, I believe for cooking reasons, not freaky Nordic drug use, or fixing a horn on a helmet, or checking a bowl for a hernia, probably after castrating it, which she is also very good at. So Coco, here's a fun fact. I always thought the joke of a doctor saying, turn your head and cough, I had thought it was part of a prostate exam. Have you ever been told to turn your head and cough? I have, and I don't remember where. I hope it was at the doctor's. <laughs> Were they holding your testicles at the time? I've definitely yeah. It was either holding or or having Pushing. sort of pressure against it. Yeah, I believe so. I think it was in man. It might have been in high school or something. Probably for a physical. Oh, yeah. Boy. Yeah. Hmm. So apparently that whole process. See, I thought it was a prostate exam, and I guess you cough while uh, yeah they're while checking the for hernias, is there. hernias or something. Like yeah. That. So it's a hernia check. Mm -hmm. So that when you cough. If you have a hernia, the pressure can cause the testicular wall to basically change and they can feel that pressure change and go, oh, you have a hernia. But I'm with Dorothy on that one because I don't know how you check for a hernia on a bull. Long glove. <laughs> Shoulder length. <laughs> Thick. This is a durable plastic. Barely acknowledging her friend's accomplishments, no matter how bizarre they may be, Blanche says that they aren't fair to mention as they're so specific to Rosa's skill set. Okay, she says, how about that dance marathon where I beat your butt? But Blanche never told her Wally gave her bare bottom spankings. 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 Season 3, Episode 2 takes us to the dance marathon. Just before our arrival via flashback, we arrived at the dance with the girls and met all of their dates and the fellow dancers. As the disco ball spins, the night goes on. The dancers, those that remain on the floor at least, are in their seventh hour. The exciting horns and jives have mellowed to a delicate jazz and swaying, 
but everyone is dancing, technically. Reminded of the big dance back home, Rose starts to reminisce about St. Olaf, prompting Dorothy to scream out for a judge. Rose is clearly trying to bore everyone to sleep so that she can win. Rose decides it's Dorothy's exhaustion causing her to feel tired, not her story. Who you callin' exhausted, a non-exhausted Dorothy exclaims. You want to see exhausted? Picking up the pace, Dorothy takes over the band. Requesting some peppier music, she gets the made-famous-by-Glenn-Miller jazz masterpiece, 1944's In the Mood. Taking the floor first is Dorothy, proving just how untired she is. With some shaking fingers and outkicked heels, she and her date make their way across the floor, starting a combination dance circle slash soul train line. After some twirls, twists, and mashed potatoes, Blanche has had enough and she's ready to show off just how awake she and her date are. Blanche's blue dress twirls, nearly touching the edges of the crowd. After some head bobs and close-ups of fancy footwork, it's Rose's turn. All of the innocence she was perceived to have had while asking permission to dance is gone while she warns her date to stay on the sidelines so he doesn't get hurt. With a count on her fingers and silver shoes on her feet, Rose is the maestro now, starting the band with Sing, 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 famously recorded by Louis Prima and Benny Goodman, among the thousands of other covers. As Rose's shoulders, among other things, shimmy, she gives the room a show, and a fan-favorite stunt dancer arrives. With cartwheels, flips, and splits, Rose has made it clear. She, too, is far from being tired. With a flawless transition of stunt dancer finishing with their hands wrapped around their head to Rose resuming the pose, it's time to get back to the marathon. Whoosh. Telling all these stories has been enough time that the girls have finished the cheesecake, which has Blanche really worried. Normally, that's the right amount of time to come up with a solution to any problem, but not this time. This time, she's just empty. No, not literally empty, Sophia. And yes, sometimes you do need to undo the top button when you've overindulged. Mind your business. Dorothy reminds Blanche that she didn't know that this was even happening, so she can take her time. Sophia makes the valid point that with the money that she makes selling the house, she can get an even bigger and better one, something Blanche isn't exactly excited about. If she does end up selling the house and she ends up with some cash, she would rather go around the country to visit family she hasn't seen. That's a nice thought and all, but as Dorothy points out, even a hotel chain doesn't have the amount of visitors they do. They do. They do. And now to revisit My Brother, My Father from Season 3, Episode 17. Already miserable, pretending to be married to Stan for the sake of Sophia, Dorothy asks her mother to join her in the kitchen. Trying to be optimistic, Sophia thinks everything's going to be okay. Dorothy does not. She wants to be honest and done with all of this. Before their argument can continue, Angelo comes in to get a drink of scotch to take with his heart medicine. Seeing a chance for honesty, Dorothy begins to confess. As a professional secret hearer, Angelo suggests that he grabs his drink and they head for the coat closet as they can use it as a temporary confessional. No, she's not making that kind of confession. It's about her and Stan. But before Dorothy can explain herself, Angelo has something to say. On the day Stan and Dorothy wed, Sophia told him that she was certain the marriage was doomed. But now here he is in the presence of a 40-year-long marriage, and it helps his heart almost as much as his medication and the shot of scotch does. Learning that Angelo has come across the globe against the wishes of his doctors, making a special stop in Miami just to see them to celebrate their love, Dorothy's not sure what to say. So when Stan joins them, she realizes that lying for a couple of hours is better than breaking the heart of or possibly even killing her uncle. So she grabs Papa Bear so he can hug Mama Bear Stan isn't sure what's going on, but he's happy to play along. As the storm continues to rage, the happy family is in the living room enjoying cake and coffee. Angelo doesn't want seconds, but sweetheart Stan does. Leaning into the pet names a little too hard, Stan calls Dorothy darling. 
then begs for his dumplings quick return to which she responds in one of my favorite Dorothy moments because it's fully my grandmother. Five feet have wings, barf bag. Sealing it with a kiss to her pinky. In the kitchen, Sophia begs once again for Dorothy to keep it together. They only have a little bit longer to go before he'll be leaving for his flight. Then from the back door, it's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's Blanche and Rose in nun habits. Their costumes for The Sound of Music seem to have been inspired by the Sally Field 1967-1970 sitcom The Flying Nun, with the Daughters of Charity of St. Vincent de Paul headwear and everything. The ladies are just drenched from the storm, but that doesn't answer Dorothy's question about why they're dressed as nuns and carrying their clothes. Well, it's not because it's good news. You heard me right, Sven. The news is bad. The girls were at the theater in the middle of a rehearsal when it was announced that a hurricane was coming and everyone needed to get home. That's when Uncle Angelo surprises everyone by coming into the kitchen to get cake as he had changed his mind. He's delighted to see the sisters, so after a brief pause of confusion and terror, they do introductions. Sister Rose and Sister Blanche. Looking over their situation, Angelo is too polite to ask what the hell is going on, So Blanche, holding up her own beige bra, which I just realized, why did she take her bra off to put on a nun habit? I mean, I guess because she's Blanche. She informs him that they are, as good sisters of charity, there to collect lingerie for needy, sexy people. A top 10 classic Blanche line. Blanche just can't bring herself to look at Angelo. Rose can't look away from Blanche. Joining the party, Stan is here, and yes, Finn, the news is bad. Please stop asking. A hurricane is headed for Miami. Airports are closed. A stay-in-place warning has been issued. It only takes a second for Dorothy to realize that this means they aren't going to be playing pretend for just a couple of hours. This could go on for a few days. As Blanche processes the information, she lets out an, oh, Jesus, before realizing the company she's in. Covering for a little slip of that whole name in vain commandment, she cleverly begins to pray. Whoosh. And now we go all the way back to season one, episode 17, Nice and Easy. At the door is Blanche's niece, Lucy, played by Hallie Todd, who we spoke about further in the original episode. Blanche and Lucy are elated to see each other, and Blanche quickly introduces her to the girls. As Blanche is commenting on all of Lucy's beautiful physical attributes, which of course make her feel like she's looking in a mirror, a mirror Sophia claims needs some Windex because she's not seeing things clearly. Sophia then hobbles off, one shoe in hand. We need to look at Lucy's pants real quick, right at the crotch, especially when she first comes in the door. In that area is some sort of design or affray or distress. It kind of looks like every pair of jeans I've had where the thighs rub together, which Coco and I spoke about at length just a few episodes ago. And this has that same frayed look, but it's just right. It's just right at the zipper. I don't know if it was purposeful or what, but as we'll learn, her vagine can cause quite a bit of friction. While the ladies ask the usual questions about travel, Lucy delightfully informs them that she met a single doctor on the plane and she's meeting him in half an hour. I mean, I've met guys on planes. I've had dates where I've visited places. But holy cow, girl, give it a minute. At least have a meal with your hosts before you dip. Blanche can't be mad. Lucy is taking her advice. Because if you've got a stallion eating out of your hand, best to lock the gate before you let him get any sugar. What? My hypothesis is that this was written as purposeful nonsense. So you've got a hot guy on the hook and he's interested. I'm not quite sure what the gate represents. Going out on a date quickly before you sleep with him or I don't know. And I have no judgment here. I plan on being a cool aunt as well. But at what age was Blanche teaching this girl about oats and sugar? I would guess during a Christmas visit when she was young. She may have also said it in the context of being next to a horse and then, but but it was like Lucy a, used that was like hey. Well, but it was a, she was saying it as a as a metaphor for oh, life. Yeah. Blanche, she, while she was pointing at the male <laughs> horse and whatever it was displaying. What? Blanche is a little bummed Lucy is leaving so quickly, but she feels better about it since it's something her mom wouldn't let her do. 
Blanche is tickled at how proud she is of Lucy, and now that she's sitting on the couch, we can see that, yes, her pants are leggings, but not just any leggings. They're the kind with the little foot strap that, as a child, I never understood and were very uncomfortable in my shoes. Even more shocking than the strap, she's wearing them with her kitten heels, which feels kind of like the mom version of sandals with socks. Yeah, they're like reverse suspenders for your pants. Yes. And your, the bottoms of your feet are the shoulders. What? When Blanche says out loud that she wishes that she could find a doctor as easily, Dorothy pets her arm, reminding her that there's not enough sugar left in that bowl. Somebody call the burn unit. Whoosh. Now, season two, episode 19, A Long Day's Journey into Marinara. Complimenting the veal made by Sophia's visiting sister, Angela, Blanche thanks her for cooking. But Angela doesn't see it as a compliment because Blanche left sauce on the plate. And if you really like something, you use bread to get all of the sauce. But Blanche can't be so flippant with bread. She has gained a little weight, a fact that she doesn't need to say out loud. It's not like Angela is blind. You You can't can't say that. Oh, boy. Just have the bread, Blanche. Besides, even if she can't afford the calories, she can afford the incredibly cheap bread. Excited by the extravagant, authentic Italian cuisine the sisters made for dinner, Blanche and Dorothy cannot wait for dessert. That is until they hear it's Rose who will be providing that dish, prompting another one of my favorite Blanche moments because she reminds me of my other grandma. When she hears that devastating news, she lets out a, Damn! Damn. Correcting herself for Rose's sake, she says, Oh, I said, yum. I said, yum. Treating the girls to an ancient Scandinavian Gerflerkenberger cake, Rose proudly shares that she's tweaked the recipe a little bit to give it some American flair. Then in a very pop culture moment, Dorothy jokes that Rose has brought her cake into the 80s. Rose agrees, but modestly. Sure, the recipe is good, according to her, but she's not one to blow her own to Bourbonflurken a.k.a. to blow her own horn or to brag. From the article Instruments of Expression, in medieval times, a herald would blow a trumpet to announce the arrival of a king. To blow your own horn simply means to create a fanfare for yourself. Blowing your own de Pergenflerker, well, this is a family show. Blow it! Sophia can't even reach hers. (gasps) Spicy! Catching up, Angela has shared with Sophia that they are the only two living members of their original family. Hmm, then can someone explain the appearance of Uncle Angelo in upcoming episodes? Also, two kids, one is Angela, one is Angelo. You're just setting yourself up for failure. With everyone gone, Angela lives with her goat. Her daily routine is to hang with said goat, attend a funeral, return to the goat, and pass out after drinking a bottle of Chianti. This spawns a conversation surrounding the time they have left to spend with each other and how difficult it is to do when you live across the world from one another. For Sophia, it's a reality check. At 80 years old, they have, what, maybe 20, 30 good years left together? I hate to be the rain on this parade, but with an average lifespan in 1986 being 74.8 years, y'all are already pushing your luck. Sophia wants for them to be closer to each other, literally and figuratively. As she isn't interested in doing her laundry on a rock, Sophia doesn't want to move back to the village. She'd rather Angela move to Miami. This idea has everyone excited. Everyone except Angela. She's old. What does she know about immigrating to another country? Well, it wouldn't be that hard. She did live in the States for at least 30 years. When Dorothy asks Angela to compare the options of living with a goat or Sophia, she needs a moment to think about it. Whoosh. It's Cousin Sven time with a revisit to Season 3, Episode 9, A Visit from Little Sven. Little Cousin Sven, which means boy or lad, has finally arrived. When Rose jokes that the large man in a boring 80s suit with a yellow button-up and suspenders has grown, Sven points out that they've never met. But yes, technically, he has grown. When Dorothy gets Rose's attention and requests she and Blanche get introductions, Rose is now as witty as Sophie when she introduces Blanche to Dorothy, Dorothy to Blanche. If they aren't careful, Sven will be thinking Rose is the smartass and Blanche is the dummy. 
Speaking of dummies, these annoying jokes are like living in a house of Howie Mandel's, according to Dorothy. Okay, and I took this wig and I put this wig on my head and I had this whole dress and I took some makeup and I smeared it on my face and I took some fake eyelashes and banged them on my forehead and I took some more makeup and smeared it all over my face and then I went to the building next door and I banged on the lady's door and she came to the door and I went, Avon! <laughs> and she spent $16. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Good night. Always one to provide a warm welcome, Blanche offers Fenn congratulations on his upcoming nuptials. When he responds with shyness, not sure how things will go as he hasn't dated much, Blanche tells him to get out. She can't believe that a tall, handsome, strong Viking man like that isn't getting action with the ladies. No way. It's confirmed that Rose and Sven are related when he naively takes Blanche's get out, literally seeing himself to the door. Needing to get her cousin and his luggage back, Rose runs after him, leaving Dorothy and Blanche with the horrifying realization that Rose is the smart one in the Lindstrom family tree. Whoosh. For the third time, Blanche wants the girls to make a pact. No, not about staying together through age or change, but to have less people staying in the house. They all chuckle, and with perfect timing, there is a knock at the back door of all places. Dorothy dismisses it, telling Rose it's probably nobody. When Stan, who has now helped himself into the house, comes through the kitchen, it confirms Dorothy's thought. See? It's nobody. Stan's there to see his favorite ladies. Just kidding. He needs to borrow a car. No need to think about it. Dorothy tells him no. Stan isn't even that upset about not being given a car, as much as he's bothered by no one asking him why he needed one. Before Stan can upset them more or rummage through their leftovers, Dorothy takes the bait and asks him why he needs a car. To no one's surprise, he has a new business. He is going to deliver pizza with a promise to do it even faster than Domino's. Avoid the Noid with the Domino's Pizza Guarantee. We guarantee your pizza will be delivered within 30 minutes or you get $3 off your order. Guaranteed. And we guarantee your pizza will taste great. If you're not satisfied with your pizza, we'll replace it or refund your money. Only our pizza is guaranteed to avoid the noise. Domino's Pizza delivers. Call now. Not so fun fact. You might be old enough to remember the 30-minute guarantee Domino's used to have. I don't think my family was super vigilant about it. The pizza usually arrived pretty quickly and we never had any complaints. If you weren't around or you don't recall, Domino's had a deal from 1979 to 1993 that claimed it would get your pizza to you after ordering, over the phone, mind you, within 30 minutes. If they didn't, the deal had started that you would get a free pizza before it morphed into getting $3 off. Hey, this is a 10. The tab's 13. You're two minutes late, dude. Ah, come on. I couldn't find a place. Wise man say, forgiveness is divine, but never pay full price for late pizza. Picture it. 1991. You're working at a pizza place. It's a Saturday night, or maybe it's the Super Bowl. Everyone is ordering. The phone won't stop ringing. You have to keep all the orders straight, make the pizzas, cook them in the oven for eight or so minutes, get them compiled to drivers who are finding their way via physical maps only, mind you. No GPS in those days. And get the pizza to you within 30 minutes. Obviously, this was a near impossibility depending on the distance from the store and the house, so delivery drivers were told to do what they needed to make that delivery. You may be wondering, why did that promotion ever come to an end? According to Snopes, at least one person was killed and several more were injured by delivery drivers that caused wrecks. There are urban legends of dozens of deaths, including a child, but that was not the case. The main cause would be the following lawsuits that really had Domino's changing their tune. They were ordered to pay $78 million. The public side of it, people were really taking advantage of it. And there were people that were turning off porch lights or blocking their address or doing things to kind of add a couple minutes time. Yeah, I ran him off the road. Yeah. <laughs> or like, oh, sorry, I gave you a purposefully wrong address so you couldn't find me. They were doing some shady stuff so that the drivers would be late. So the drivers are killing people and themselves trying to get these pizza delivered. And there's, by the time they're actually getting there with all these wrong directions, we're getting cold pizzas. Yeah. I'd rather have a fresh pizza. In 40 a, minutes. Yeah, then $3 off another pizza later. <laughs> 
it's not worth it because I want to enjoy the. I, I want it now. Yeah. I want to enjoy it now. Yeah. Damn it. It's my pizza. And, and I, I want, want it, it now. now. So for Stan, the one-man show trying to beat the unbeatable numbers was impossible, and of course he crashed his car. Hearing he just wrecked his own vehicle, Rose is worried Stan will do the same to hers. But it's not just the car he's after. What he would really like is for them to become the delivery drivers for him. He'll be working in the office, and he will, oh boy, tease the female high school employees. You You can't can't say that. Um, quick question. What about the actual pizza? Where's that coming from? Get an oven, storefront? No, just want to deliver pizzas. Okay. Quickly, Stan is over the pizza idea and hopes to find his next business venture. But first, he hopes to find snacks. This interaction has Dorothy frustrated and wondering why Stan always shows up at their place when he's in a bind. It's because Dorothy and the girls are his best friends. It doesn't even matter if they don't like him. Sounding stressed, Rose gives Stan the news that Blanche is considering selling the house. News he does not take well, calling the house ours. Stan can't believe that she would walk away from the memories they've all made there. Dorothy reminds him that they haven't made memories. He has had their snacks. In fact, Stan wants to know if they recall the time he came over. Came over. Came over. For this memory, we're returning to Season 3, Episode 17 again. After a fight, Dorothy has told Angelo that she doesn't want Stan with her in the bedroom, but with some begging and remembering that they have to fake being married, Dorothy allows Stan to stay. Making himself comfortable on the edge of the bed, he assumes he'll be sleeping in. Dorothy corrects him with a kick to the floor where he and every other dog should sleep. Unless that dog is our sweet baby, Rosie. (laughs) Enraged, Stan isn't so upset about the bed, but that he's having to work so hard to get a woman. Usually, they come to him begging, and that's because, according to Dorothy, he's paying for sex workers. With a good night and a shut-up, Dorothy turns off the light and Stan gets comfortable on the floor. Within a few seconds, though, he's giggling, leaving Dorothy concerned that he's playing with his own Mr. Ha-Ha. He was fishing in a river of pepperoni. He was playing hide the salami. He was petting Mr. Peepers. Hey-oh, Mr. Peepers! But that's not it. He was laughing, remembering a honeymoon memory, the first of many times he would be kicked out of bed and forced to the floor. This occurred at a resort in the Poconos, a mountain town in Pennsylvania. I don't think the official tagline was, where every cottage is April in Paris, and oh boy, every bathroom is like Calcutta in July, which I think is a reference to the heat of India, the effects Indian food can have on Western bowels, and perhaps the less-than-desired quality of the bathroom, which earns an oh boy because, I don't know, we just shouldn't talk about other cultures like that, Dorothy. To remedy that situation 40 years earlier, Stan started singing I've Got a Crush on You, which got him back into bed, which is what he's trying to do right now. Only this time, Dorothy is not so gullible. She's an adult now. Yeah, she was an actual teen last time. You... I've Got a Crush on You was written by George and Ira Gershwin. It was originally used in Broadway shows, but soon became a jazz standard and successful song covered by Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, and many others. I never had the least notion that I could fall with such emotion. When that doesn't work, Stan is left with one option, which doesn't thrill Dorothy. She's seen it. But that wasn't what he was talking about. He's moved on to another Gershwin song, Embraceable You, with covers by Ella Fitzgerald, among many others. George Gershwin composed many a classic standard, such as Rhapsody in Blue, Summertime, and They Can't Take That Away From Me, before dying at just 38 years old. Come to mama, come to mama, My sweet embrace Before things can get too steamy, Ellen is here. Oh, no, 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 that was no spasm. Look, I got on the bed. The whole bed was thumping and rising off the floor and shaking the whole thing with me on it. 
Oh, wait, it's a distraught Sophia seeking solace after a nightmare. That nightmare being exactly what she was witnessing, Dorothy and Stan in bed together. To keep a distance between her divorced daughter and ex-son-in-law that she's forced to pretend to be married to for the night, Sophia climbs into the bed, making herself the center of a Zabornak sandwich. And if Stan even tries to crawl over her, she'll make like the Berlin Wall, which would come down just a year later, and put barbed wire betwixt his legs. This works out well for Stan, as he does get to sleep in a bed as opposed to on the floor, and luckily for everyone, Sophia arrived at the Gershwin songs. He had apparently skipped over his usual starter of Cole Porter, composer of hits like Anything Goes, So In Love, and I Get a Kick Out of You. And he went straight for the Gershwin. Whoosh. After that walk down memory lane, Stanley can't help but feel emotional, thinking about all the fun times they've had together. And Dorothy would like to have more fun times, so she would like Stan to leave. Just as Blanche announces that she's come to a decision about the house, the phone rings. Sophia answers it as Blanche goes on. There are just too many memories in the house. They've had too many great times and there are more to be had. She just can't imagine living anywhere else. That's when Sophia hollers about who's on the phone. It's Mr. Yakimura and he has doubled the offer. Without hesitation, Blanche tells Sophia to let him know that they'll all be out of the house by the start of the following month. This story is to be continued, but not later this evening, like it says on the screen as part of the two-episode finale. We're going to be back next week with the conclusion, more clips, and our own wrap-up now that we are more than halfway through the series. As always, thank you for listening, and thank you for being a friend. Oh my God, fan theory. What if they're the same person? What if she, what if it's Angela as Angela and then she's created this other character of Angelo and she just shows up as a priest man and then everyone has to go, oh, Uncle Angelo's here. Well, that's a bad theory. Thank you. I mean, the the voice that is that comes out of that character seems like someone doing a mm-hmm. goof. Mm-hmm. All right. Now you're coming around I'm to coming it. Around I to this hear horrible it. theory. <laughs> Coming around on it, I like it a lot. For three primetime Emmys, Emmys, as Lieutenant, wow. Him having a heart attack? Oh, Chris yeah. Farley, That's not the part I chose. Coughing up but... a giant prime rib <laughs> or whatever that is. <laughs> <laughs> With the mother and the jags and the speed. <laughs> and he is going hard on that music. Well, his last name is Hammer. (laughs) Everything's a nail to that man. Coconut oil or lard if you're in a pinch. And it won't pinch because of all the lard. Brought to you by the Lard Council. Melt it and cook with it. It's so good. Got lard? And to this day, you hate wearing shoes. That's right. We figured it out. Well, they were trying to choke your feet from the beginning. You can't have that. Your feet need to look around and... They're free. Feel everything. <laughs> pick up things. That's how you pick up something. What was that? You picked up something yesterday with your toe. It was amazing. Thank you. You like reached over with your big toe and grabbed it <laughs> on the floor. It was it was really something. I don't remember, but I believe Wham. it. Yeah, something in the kitchen you dropped. Well, I'm. It was got, a very sharp knife. I got all these. I got four limbs going on. Put them to use, like a little monkey. It's impressive. Thank you. Strong toes. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm but fine. But I'm about to talk about the Noid. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.